0: The success of true liberty is found in the history of Christendom, for the American nation it is found in the work of the Reformation, particularly in the passion, obedience, and work of the Puritans. In honor of our nation's liberty celebration, we pause today to reflect upon its religious origins in order to find our way back to true national liberty, a liberty which is to be found only in Christ. Our Old Covenant reading, coming from Psalm 119, Psalm 119, beginning in stanza 137 through 144. By inspiration of God, the prophet says this, Righteous thou art, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do I not forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold upon me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, Second Corinthians in chapter 3, beginning in stanza 12 through stanza 17 through verse 17. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 17. By the same Spirit that moved the king of Israel, David, to write his psalms, So does Paul write by inspiration of God. He says this to the church at Corinth. Seeing then that we have such great hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remained the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands... Again, before us today as truth that we might live thereby in obedience and passion. Now, continuing in the tradition of the theology of Calvin, Beza, and the reformers of the 16th century, the American Puritans believe that the the construct of civilization, the family and the church, and especially the civil government, the entire culture, could never be neutral. The construct of culture could never be neutral. While they held, of course, unfortunately, they began to gravitate to this idea of a blend of natural law, human reason, and scripture. It was, for the American Puritans, it was scripture that was always used as the foundation of truth. And unlike the natural law theorists, of today where human reason natural law and self-reliance is the foundation of truth and where the supremacy of scripture is diluted negated uh, questioned or even even spurned the american puritans began with scripture the problem was that over time the beginning point that what is known as the epistemological starting point for truth, was inverted from Scripture to natural law. So they began to to look at natural law, and that, of course, gravitated and, and spiraled downward into positive law. But for the American Puritans, at the inception of our nation, in the 1600s, it was the Scripture. That was the foundation of truth. They knew that Scripture, God's law, God's word, was not only the truth of God's word, but it could be trusted as inerrant and infallible, it was not only true, but the truth itself. Furthermore, they knew that since neutrality was a myth, there could be no such thing as neutrality, especially when it comes to theological and religious ideas, everyone holds to some religious idea. They knew that man will think and act and live according to his own particular religious presuppositions, and if not reformed by the Scripture, if not formed by the Scripture, if not the Scripture forming your mind, then, of course, man's mind would be formed by its natural depravity. They also knew that man will either be covenantally minded or covenantally rebellious. Accordingly, the cultural order will be either conformed to the Word of God or it will be conformed to the mind of man. There's no middle ground. There may be a blend, but as that blend begins to apostatize more and more and become more wicked, man, if they're not straightened by the law of God, they will gravitate toward their own mind, their own positive law thinking. Now, too often Christians think that they can bypass individual and family order in order to go straight to fixing the government or the culture. And that is a myth. Fixing the culture begins at home with the individual and then the family. The Puritans, however, when we read about the Puritans, it's curious because they pretty much had their government in order. They were able to focus culturally only because they had a biblical handle on the government of their own selves and the government of their families. So they didn't have to really talk too much about fixing the cultural order or fixing the government or fixing the laws of the land because they already had that under control. They knew that the family, the individual in the family was the place where things had to be reformed in order to keep the government structured properly and to have the government be Christ-centered. Now, despite the Puritan dilemma, and that's what it's called, whereby they sometimes mixed scripture with natural law to arrive at truth, they knew that the social order had to be based in either God and his just laws or man who, without regeneration, was trapped in a fallen sinful state and entirely unpredictable. Man is entirely unpredictable if not conforming himself to the law of God. Now, for the Puritan, education, government, law, public policy, all of these things they knew could not be neutral They had to either be Christ-centered, Christocentric, or Anthropocentric. And that's what the Puritans knew. They functioned according to that biblical basis. They also understood that every soul functioned according to a religious lordship operating principle, and that is what we've been talking about for so long. Either man is God or God is God. You couldn't have both. Man cannot share the throne with God. God will not share his throne with man. The Lord of the old Adamic nature, the Adamic nature of the flesh, is autonomous. In other words, he's self-law. He will only follow his own law. Autonomous means self-law. In this natural state of rebellion, because autonomy is rebellion, man desires to be like God, and to be as God, his battle cry is, I will no longer have this man, this God-man, Christ, rule over me because I will be as God and I will interpret God and his law according to my interpretation of God and his law. In other words, instead of thy will be done, rebellious man declares, my will be done. It's all about me if the societal order was to be properly maintained Godward, the sphere of social government and the social order at large had to function according to a set standard of principles which were reliable, which when applied launched an actual development of institutions and the execution of policy. Now this Puritan social order was known as a theocratic republic, which was a commonwealth under the theonomic principles or the biblical law principles. So it would be under God, according to His law, and that's what would structure every institution of the civil order. And since ideas have consequences, and those ideas are ultimately based upon a network of religious presuppositions, which we call worldviews, it was critical that those ideas would come from a divine source, not from the mind of man, but from a divine source that could be trusted, and the only divine source that could be trusted was God's Word to pull ideas out of the sky and not checking them with God's word was dangerous. So every institutional establishment, since they are actually directly based upon certain ideas, which are directly based upon certain theological presuppositions, a network of of world views, those ideas are fundamentally religious. And everything goes back to what you believe. If... The government believes that open borders are biblical, then the government will open the borders. So their idea will translate into an action. If the government believes that there should be no death penalty, then there will be no death penalty. But that is against the scripture. If the government believes this or that or the other thing, without the requirements of what God says, they can do almost anything. And it's all based on an idea or a belief structure which is fundamentally religious. And so the Puritans sought to implement this set of philosophical and theological presuppositions based on the word of God. They brought it from England to New England, America, during the 17th century, during the 1600s. That is the origin of our nation. Their ideas about God's involvement in government and law is reflected in the early Puritan state constitutions. Just read the constitutions. The early constitutions. The ones that our secular state has done away with. And they speak of God. They speak about where we began based upon the Bible, based upon religious presuppositions which were fundamentally Christocentric. And these constitutions prove, and you can read them, just pull them up on the internet, they prove that the Puritans, as well as the founders, understood the importance of a culture's theological underpinnings, knowing that if those underpinnings were stripped from the nation, the nation would finally collapse, because it would finally become corrupt. And so every institutional structure, including every foundational idea upon which an institution is based, is at its root religious, and the Puritans understood that. And in order to protect the liberty, to protect the liberty of that, of that individual, to protect the liberty of the family, and especially to protect the liberty of the future generations, liberty had to be based upon the law of God. Simply put, Everything known to man is born out of religious ideology. Religion is escape, inescapable. It's an inescapable aspect of life. Everyone has a religious idea. Everyone has a religious point of view, whether they know it or not, and whether they want to admit it or not. Human societies are characterized and established by a religious foundation, and that foundation provides cohesion and a basis for law. Now, if the foundation is, is autonomous, there's no cohesion. It's chaos. It's chaos. Now, depending upon which religion is used as the foundation, to that degree, you have either liberty or tyranny. Base your culture in man, you can guarantee tyranny. Base your culture in God as the undergirding foundation, and you have liberty. And since law is used to identify good and evil, and the punishments thereupon to be enforced all law and public policy has religious basis. That's why you have laws. The law says, that's good, that's bad. That's bad, that's good. That's a religious idea. R.J. Rush observes this. He says, Every state has its law order. And every law order represented and enacted morality with procedures for the enforcement of that morality. Every morality represents a form of theological order. It is an aspect and an expression of a religion. The church, thus, is not the only religious institution. The state also is a religious institution. But you see, the problem with the state is the state wants to be God. It doesn't want to be under God. It wants to be as God. And so in any culture, the source of law is the God of that culture. So if the source of law is the Congress or the executive branch, they become the God of that culture. Rushduni has this. He says this: because law governs man and society, and because it establishes and declares the meaning of justice and righteousness, law is inescapably religious in that it establishes, in practical fashion, the ultimate concern of a culture. End quote. As Rushduni clearly points out, the life of a culture is its creed. Even though the Puritans of England were in the minority, they were a minority that could not be ignored. That is essential for the church to understand today. Even though they were a minority, because the remnant is always a minority, the true Christian in the culture of the world is always a minority, the Puritans could not be ignored. They were so conspicuous, so vocal and so powerful and so influential that they could not be ignored. And that brought them victory. Author Paul Seaver explains, he says, the impact of Puritanism was, if not revolutionary, at least pervasive and inescapable. They were a minority that could not be ignored. Now, lay Englishmen looked to the Puritan clergy. Think about that. The people that were not in the church, the lay Englishmen, they looked to the clergy of the Puritans, not only for personal spiritual guidance, but for direction for a new way of life. And that meant engaging the world and all of its institutions, especially government, with the Holy Scripture. Seaver adds this, he says, Essentially, Puritanism offered a new view of man's relationship to God, and hence of man's relationship to the world and to his fellow man. Now, so popular was the Puritan pulpit in England, that within the city of London... Some preachers attracted larger audiences week after week than even Shakespeare in his prime. That is how popular the sermons were. Not because of their popularity, because of their eloquence, but because of the message and the power of the pulpit of the Puritans. Now, the reason for this is that during this era, there was a hunger for truth not seen for years. We lack that hunger, our culture lacks that hunger for truth. People don't want to know what they have to do to fix things, they just want to know how to feel good, so that they don't have to fix things. For the Puritan, the pulpit was sacred, and its control was a matter of survival. To control the pulpit meant your culture would survive. Because it kept pushing Christ and His crown rights. It kept pushing the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way for salvation for the sinner was through Christ. That brought power. People were not only hungry to hear the Word of God, at that time they were hungry to obey it as well. The great Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs once remarked, The sense of the love of Christ and pardoning of sins will constrain one to holy violence in the performing of all duties. now He used that that phrase, holy violence. And the wording of holy violence was used by the Puritans in that day to describe an energy, an energetic way of being obedient, passion, searing hot in their obedience, and in performing holy duties in the advancement of the kingdom of God. It wasn't just strolling into church on Sunday and strolling out in the afternoon and then strolling back in week after week. No, it was a holy passion, a holy violence, and that only comes one way. It only comes on the soul one way, and that is by the intervention of God the Holy Spirit. And that's what we fail to pray for. Maybe because we're afraid. Maybe because of God then gives us that holy violence, that holy passion, that we'll not be able to have enough world. You see, we by nature want a little more world. We don't want a little more God, we want a little more world. So we don't pray for a little more God, we say, Oh God, help me in a little more world. How far have we gone away, backwards, from this Puritan idea of what made America great and what made America strong and what made America a liberation nation. It was with this passion that Puritanism came to the colonies of the 1600s, setting the stage for the colonists in the 1700s. The Reverend Stephen Wilkins observes, he says, quote, The spiritual convictions which prevailed in 1775 were crucial in convicting the people that they must fight to preserve their independence. These convictions were present largely as a result of the Great Awakening of the 1740s. This revival had the effect of restoring the foundations laid by the fathers. The nation was again focused upon the chief end of man, which was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That was the chief focus during the colonial period. Notice, he continues, There was a direct consequence of the Great Awakening, a renewed theological consensus and unity that had been missing for some time. This unity was crucial, critical for both the war of independence and the setting of the form of government later the Great Awakening had two very important results in this nation. It restored both Puritan theology and, and here's what's important, Puritan vision. Puritan vision. What is the vision of the church today? The big gymnasium. The new swimming pool. The tennis court. The world. Now what needs to be understood here When we talk about Puritans and Puritanism, we usually have this image in our mind of these prudish people. Very prudish. Walked around holding a Bible and walking around very, very meek. No, no, these were were lions. These were lions in colonial America. These were men of passion and faith. They were men of, of resolve. They were men of war. They weren't prudish men. They enjoyed their their guns. In fact, in Puritan America, you couldn't sit at the end of the pew unless you had a firearm because they knew that the Indians would come on Sunday because they knew they were worshiping. And usually after a lunch, after worship, where the sermon was two hours, maybe more. In Puritan America, one preacher said one time he was preaching for about two hours and he realized the time and he paused he began to apologize for the length of the message. The people started to get very agitated and stood up and said, no, no, preach it, preach it, preach it, preach it. We want more, we want more. Today, everybody's looking at their watch after 20 minutes because they have a roast in the oven. It's funny, but it's not funny. Maybe I said it's funny. That's destroying our nation. The lack of power, the lack of passion... They were not prudish. They enjoyed their beer. They enjoyed their strong drink. And they spoke openly about the wonders of intimacy within the marriage covenant. They were no prudes. They were real men. They were real women who struggled to keep Christ alive in a world of woe. They were regular people. The only thing that distinguished them From the people of the world was their passion for Christ. They spoke about Him, they lived for Him, and they wanted others, too, to live for Christ as well. Now, between the period of the strong Puritan influence in America and the Great Awakening, there was, however, a progressive downward spiral into the adoption of a man-centered, humanistic, natural law, Enlightenment thinking. But by 1775, the Great Awakening seemed to have some success in changing the direction of the nation into a more theocratic theonomic structure as envisioned by the early Puritanism of the early Puritanism of, of John Cotton, John Winthrop, Cotton Mather, and many others during that period. That Great Awakening is what we need today. That Great Awakening rekindled the idea that the individual, the individual obedience and the family obedience, the family order, had to be maintained Because that would spread into the surrounding culture. They knew that it began with the individual and it it spread into the family and then it was evidenced in the church and then it was evidenced in the community. They knew that whenever the societal structure is built upon the mind of man and not the law of God, liberty slowly erodes and tyranny begins its ascent. Liberty, in order to be genuine, You know, we talk about liberty, we talk about being free. Well, in order for liberty to be genuine, and let me say this, in order for liberty to endure, as you see, liberty has not endured. From 1776 until now, obviously liberty has not endured. Why? Because much of the societal structure was based upon man's ideas, his religious presuppositions, the Enlightenment idea, of man being as God. But in order for liberty to endure, it must be biblically defined. For liberty to be genuine, for liberty to endure, it must also be established by the divine standard of Scripture. And for the Reformers, the Puritans, and now uh, this group of awakened colonists, as they were seeking for epistemological basis for law and liberty, they understood. That the basis for true liberty and enduring liberty, a liberty that could not be destroyed, had to be based on God's law, word. Now Scripture gives a straightforward, a straightforward explanation of what liberty is. Clearly, put the Apostle Paul says this: where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, fully aware of this, David the Psalmist says the same thing, Psalm one nineteen forty five. And I will walk at liberty because I seek thy precepts. If I'm not seeking thy precepts, how can I ever walk at liberty? You see, he understood that liberty began with him. Liberation from sin. And then it would spread. The Puritan theology, which was rekindled by the Great Awakening, harmonized with the doctrine of Scripture that Calvin and Beza, V. Ray, and so many others of the Reformation period had so vehemently declared during the European time during the 1500s. Now, along with the basics of the depravity of man, the sovereignty of God, and man's covenantal obligation to the Lord of the universe, they also posited this. One, all belief systems are either based in man or in God. Either based in man or in God. Second, all belief systems find their originating seed in either reason or revelation. Remember that. Remember, everything is either based in man's reason or God's revelation. Third, all belief systems are either humanistic or theistic, man centered, God centered. Political policy, number four, along with every other public policy, is organically religious. Greg Bonson comments, he says, Any conception of the role of civil government that claims to be distinctively Christian must be explicitly justified by the teaching of God's revealed word. Anything else reflects what the unbelieving world in rebellion against God may imagine on its own. If we are to be Christian disciples, even in the political realm, it is prerequisite that we abide in His liberating Word. That we abide in His liberating Word. You as an individual, you as a father, you as a mother, you as a child, you as a man, you as a boy, you as a girl. We must abide in His liberating Word. And that's what the Puritans wanted. They sought to enforce a structure of godly education, godly government, godly laws, beginning in the home with the family, in order to ensure liberty under God, so as to safeguard against the tyranny of man. You know, sometimes, you know, we think, well, I can sin secretly, and and we'll still, you know, the nation it'll get better. No, no, no. That's the point I'm trying to make. If you're secretly sinning, and you're still hoping for the nation to be liberated, you're hoping against hope, because it's not going to happen. We, as a Christian community, must be liberated internally from our sin. Then we work toward liberating the nation. But if we are so blinded to think that we can still sin and liberate the nation, then you haven't been reading the Scriptures. And this is why the Puritan ministers were so emphatic about protecting the Commonwealth. They were so emphatic. They they were so vocal and uh, active in the family's life, in the individual's life, from the pulpit, just pointing out sin, pointing out sin, because they knew that without that liberation internally, there could be no liberation nationally. And then they dealt with the affairs of the state. They understood that whenever a societal construct is structured, maintained, or protected liberty, that, that society, if it's protected by the word of God, and if the people of God are faithful, that society will never become wicked. It can't become wicked. It never will become tyrannical because God's people are obedient and they're involved in the affairs of their family and of the state, of course. This is why they sought to exercise what some thought to be a heavy hand of control in matters of doctrine and practice. Why do you think some ministers are so concerned with your secret life? Because they don't want to be put in jail. They don't want to have their generations destroyed. They don't want the children's children's children of their their heritage to be put in bondage. And they understand how liberty is attained. And so... Sometimes the pulpit comes down hard. Just as sometimes parents have to come down on their children. A little harder than at other times. And so for the American Puritan, the civil and cultural order of society had to be based upon a Christ-centered theological presupposition. And it was upon that basis that would ensure liberty for all. Now in light of this, the Puritans did not retreat from involvement in the civil realm. Nor did they ever imagine that the societal order, including education, politics, and law, should ever be dominated by the ideologies of humanism. Think about what's happened. The Christian community has given the education system over to the heathen. And God is saying, oh, you want the heathen to have that? Here's what the heathen will give you and your children. So that they're corrupted. You'd think that, that those young children that go to school, eight hours a day, five days a week, for how many weeks a year, they're going to be reoriented Christward by a 20-minute sermon or a little Bible study or a devotion at home when they already think mommy and daddy don't know anything. They're a bunch of morons. My teacher's know more. My friend's no more. We've given it away because we were not diligent. The motive behind the Westminster Standards was to craft a national creed calling for a covenantal allegiance to the word of God and the king of nations. The Puritans refused to abandon the culture, for to abandon it would be to shirk their duties as Christians. America was to be God's world. This is God's America. But this cultural transformation had to begin with the individual, I'm saying it again, It had to begin with the individual and then the family. Author and historian Bernard Bailyn says this, Puritanism carried on into the 18th century and into the minds of the revolutionaries the idea originally worked out in the sermons and tracts of the settlement period that the colonization of British America had been an event designed by the hand of God to satisfy His ultimate aims, reinvigorated in the historical meaning By newer works, this influential strain of thought found everywhere in the 18th century colonies stimulated confidence in the idea that America had a special place in the architecture of God's intent. But what do we find here preaching from the pulpits today? Oh no, America's done and we're all going to glory because Jesus is coming. And what does that do? People are just not doing anything. That's what it does. This is well, I'll just wait for Jesus. I'm not going to try to save America. But the Puritans said, no, this is God's intention. This nation is God's, and we are God's people, and we're going to take dominion just as Adam was told to take dominion, who failed. We will not fail, because now we have the Christ. America was to be the hope of a new heaven and a new earth which had to be conformed to the mandates of the inerrant word of truth if it ever was to survive. I have friends across the entire globe, especially over in Australia, and they are watching America like a hawk. And my friend said to me, please do everything, do everything, almost in tears, do everything you can to save that nation because if America goes, everything goes. But we don't see it that way, do we? We should see it from the eyes of the Australian folk because they said, if America goes down into socialism and communism and tyranny, we're all done because you're the only light that's in the globe at this point in this time in history. The Puritans would fight for their America because they knew that it was to be a city upon a hill with Christ as its Lord and sovereign. In 1630, the passengers of the Arabella left England with their new charter and with it a great and glorious vision which would endure throughout the colonial era despite some of its difficulties. Future Governor John Wintham stated their purpose quite clearly when he said, We shall be, notice, we shall, we shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all peoples are upon us. We're there now. The eyes of all peoples are upon us. We are to be a city upon a hill. The Arbella was one of eleven ships carrying a thousand Puritans to Massachusetts that year, and it was the largest it was the largest original venture ever attempted in the English New World, and the passengers, those one thousand, were determined to be a Christian beacon for the rest of Europe. In the words of Winthrop, they were to be a model of Christian charity. Like Calvin, they believed that every aspect and sphere of life has its root and reason in God. In other words, nothing, in their minds, nothing existed outside of Christ's dominion. And they were determined to show the world that they were right. The Puritans also understood that God had not created a dualistic universe where there was a division between the things secular and the things sacred. No. He created it one. It was all sacred because it all belonged to Him. He did not create the universe and left it to some naturalistic, mechanical uh, idea of deism or the laws of nature and the nature's God as the deist was supposed. No. Everything and every institution was sacred and accountable to God and He claimed... Dominion over it. He would say, as Calvin said, and as Abraham Kuyper repeated, he would say, The Lord says, Every inch of this universe belongs to me. But we think that, well, the world is the devil's. All the world belongs to Satan. But the world belongs to the secularist. No! Christ bought the field for the one pearl of great price. And that pearl was the Christians. But he bought the field, did he not? And the field was the world. Christ owns the world. According to the Puritan theology, they understood God's covenant. They understood that God is covenantally, and mark this down, covenantally interactive with his creation. In other words, he providentially executes all things in heaven and earth for his glory and for his advancing of his kingdom. They also knew that whenever man sinned, there would be chastising consequences. That was an essential truth. They understood Deuteronomy 28. In fact, in America, until recently, when a president took the oath of office, he put his hand on an open Bible. It's significant that today it's closed because they don't open it. Obviously. But it was an open Bible. It was an open Bible, and you know what the Bible was open to? Deuteronomy 28. Do this and live, do that and die. They viewed Deuteronomy chapter 28 as the operating sanction for obedience and rebellion both for men and for nations. They were epistemologically self-aware that whenever a nation sinned or resorted to an anti-Christian governing structure, God's judgment would fall upon that nation. But you're not hearing the churches talk about that much. The motivating principle of the Puritans was Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this motivated them to be to be very particular about how America would be structured and what they should continue in. And it was the church, the church, it was the church, those faithful ministers, those faithful pastors who had given their lives for Christ's work in his kingdom that were given the divine mandate to act as the prophets of God in order to keep a close eye on not only the individual of their church and their families, but the civil magistrates. Where are those faithful ministers, those faithful pastors who have given their lives in our local communities telling these these men, you are in sin, you are wrong, you cannot... Pass that bill. You cannot pass that ordinance. Or you need to pass this ordinance and you need to pass that ordinance. Where are the pastors? Why? In all, why well, do we have uh, 60 churches in just this small area? Every week we should be at that Board of Supervisors meeting telling them what they should do and what they should not do. But what do we hear? Crickets! Nothing. The understanding of the doctrine of man's sinful nature was also a fundamental doctrine that the Puritans embraced. They knew that if the societal order was to function properly in righteousness, holiness, and peace, man could not be left without restraints. The Hope it was to give them that restraint. The word of God was that restraint. That restraint would come by the way of God's law, according to a theonomic law structure. Puritan America was to be structured as a theonomic commonwealth based upon biblical covenantalism and not upon man's ideas or natural law. Historian and theologian Archie Jones says it this way. He says, abstract theories of natural law can provide no such protections for the individual's life, person and property of liberty, nor for the family or church. No protection. Natural law, man's positive law. We're left without being protected. The laws that are coming down out of Washington or out of the Congress cannot provide protection for us. We are left to ourselves. When the duty of the civil magistrate is to protect its citizenry, they are doing the exact opposite. William N. Wechter observes this. All natural law theories of law and justice lead in practice to a form of legal positivism. In other words, men will just make up laws as they go. They sure do. And they do. It wasn't until the ideas of the Enlightenment took a firm hold on the 18th century American thought, that things really began to unravel. That Enlightenment period proved to be the philosophical stranglehold upon Puritanism and the application of theonomy for a constitutional theocracy. Until that time, Calvinism and Puritanism influenced the nation. And it was clearly seen in England and American thought, structuring the political, constitutional, legal, and cultural framework. You talk about Puritanism today, and people say, oh, 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 those stuffed shirts oh, I don't want to be a Puritan. In fact, they got the name because that was a derogatory term. Oh, they were so Puritanical. But if it wasn't for them, America would not exist as it existed. Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion was declared by the Genevan city fathers and adopted by the governing magistrates as holy writ, whereby structuring Geneva according to the principles of God's word. The ethical values, including the penology of the Old Testament, became the basis of law in Geneva. And this was to be the Puritan model for the New World. This was the intent of John Winthrop, who brought to America in the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in the mid-1600s, the biblical notion of a theocratic commonwealth. He believed, Winthrop believed, that in order to actually make America a city upon a hill, America had to attain the blessing of God. If America didn't have the blessing of God, it didn't matter what anybody did. In order to do that, he believed that the community had to abide by biblical law. And this would establish the the community as a Christian community in covenant with God. As long as the community was obedient, it would receive the blessing of God. Now Calvin tried to do this and he did a great job in Geneva. He did have some blowback. People used to sick their dogs on him. They used to shoot guns through his window. They poisoned Pierre Viret where he never really totally was healed from the poison because they hated God. So not being able to kill God, they sought to kill his prophets. Yeah, we'll get blowback. We'll get some blowback. But the answer to that is, so what? Now if the nation rebelled, of course, or if the people rebelled, everything would fall apart. The entire commonwealth would receive harsh chastisements for breaking their oath. So Winthrop understood that there were positive sanctions as well as negative sanctions. He believed that Only by obeying God's law could real liberty be established. Notice what what he posited. In Winthrop's model of government, and I, I really believe we need to get back to some of this. He said this first. A Christian community exists in covenant with God. This covenant is an agreement to live in accordance with God's law. In this way, true liberty would be secure. The government is to enforce God's law. Citizens are to obey the government as long as they are faithful to God's law. But, he says, when tyranny becomes law, they must rebel. And that's where you get the slogan, rebellion then becomes a duty. When tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. He says this also, civil liberty is freedom under God alone. It is not anarchistic liberty, whereby every man is a law unto himself, nor is it extreme libertarianism, whereby every man does what is right in his own eyes, but rather it is liberty under God's ethical jurisdiction according to his divine limitations. He also said pure democracy is a corruption of God's will and cannot bring about just government since natural man, as a result of the fall, cannot be trusted. Only the elect, God's fearing individuals should be considered to govern since only they are able to understand the law of God and its proper application to the model that he has given for the world as were the Levites in the Hebrew Republic. So notice, only God's people should be in government. So what's the question you ask anyone that's running for office? The first question is not what are the policies that you're going to enact what you want to change, What you, you say, how do you, through your voting, through your legislation, how do you advance the kingdom of God? How are you going to advance Christendom in time and in history the minute you get in there? And if they can't ask that, answer that question, either give them the answer and let them swear to it or get rid of them. He continued, he says this, All others must obey the laws of God and be subordinate to just government. You see, Winthrop saw God's law and liberty as inseparable. He believed that liberty flowed from a moral observance of Old Testament law because only God's law could show man what is good. The good, he believed, was external to man. It was not innate in man. It must be imposed upon man by God's good and holy law. A community would then be measured by its obedience to God's word a culture would be measured by obedience to God's word. So you have on the scale from 1 to 10, 10 being obedient and 1 being totally reprobate. Where does America fit into that equation? Minus 1, minus 5, minus 10? If you're going to base America and measure her by the obedience to God's word, she is definitely failing her grade. So if a community or an entire nation remain faithful, it would be blessed, it would become the city upon a hill, it would be the gift of God to the obedient believers. My dear friend and professor at New Geneva of Languages, John Huffman, says this, These words of Winthrop uphold the biblical view that lawful liberty is found only in obedience to the will of God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. It is not based upon rights, but rather upon duty. When this is understood, all questions of morality become crystal clear. Christians should not oppose abortion because babies have a right to life. Rather, we oppose abortion because God says, thou shalt not kill. When we argue human rights, our enemies will take our own rationalistic argument and use it against us, demanding a right to worship as they please, a right to engage in immorality, and a right to speak and live as they choose. End quote. It should be done because God says it. Not because the Constitution says it. But because God says it. Then it will endure. Winthrop's idea of a city upon a hill much like Calvin's Geneva was the quintessential model of what the kingdom of God would look like on earth beginning in America. It would not be perfect by any means but it would be righteous and it would be just and it would labor to remain righteous and just. It might also be argued that the philosophical ideology of this era was strikingly reconstructive. Now I talk to people about reconstruction, Christian reconstruction, they say, oh, Christian reconstruction, all all this stuff. Well, what are the secularists doing? What are the wicked? They're reconstructing the whole America. They're reconstructing every day. Why shouldn't we not reconstruct back from wickedness to righteousness? And so whenever we hear that Christian reconstruction is a new idea or an unattainable construct, we need only to point back to history in order to show that not only isn't it new, it's the bedrock of our nation. Winthrop came here to reconstruct America Godward. And we need to recognize that God's word is the bedrock of every nation. Every nation, at least, that desires liberty, justice, and peace. We must also realize that America is now being reconstructed along anti-Christian, totalitarian lines. And if we don't do something about it, we're going to be buried by it. Now, sadly, the domination of Winthrop's Puritan position, that dominance waned as the 17th century advanced along with the adoption of rationalism and natural law theory part of the reason for this falling away was also in large part due to division in the Protestant churches schism, infighting, schism made many of the people bitter and cynical about the faith you know I hear people say no I don't go to church anymore because that church over there there were bad people and they whispered behind your back and there was slander and schism and arguing so I don't go to church anymore Well, I asked them this. I said, uh, well, if you went to a doctor that you didn't like, uh, would you then just stop going to all doctors? Would you stop going to doctors because one doctor you didn't like? You see, that's just an excuse. So what we have by the end of the 1700s is a nation and a people ripe for a societal system based upon humanistic principles and the politics of pluralism. Many gods... All roads lead to God. All roads lead to heaven. Okay, so, what can be done? Where do we begin? How can we begin the long journey back forming and installing a working cultural model based upon scripture which will ensure liberty? How do we do this? Because if we just curse the darkness and don't shine a the light, then we're just as guilty as anybody else. first, the family, the individual, the family, and the church needs to wake up to its obligation as cultural leaders and cultural warriors. Family and churches need to break free from simply identifying and analyzing cultural problems and begin to actually develop biblical solutions and then implement them in the real world. We need solutions. But let me just say this as, as a footnote if you have a young family, and we have a lot of young families here, if your family is not in order, if you're not in order, don't go into the world to fix the world. Because your family will just keep, go into that graveyard spiral downward and become totally out of order. Fix the foundation first and then you can build on it. Secondly, we need to, of course, raise up leaders. New churches with new leaderships, they must be developed and planted like it was during the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. Coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, they began to plant churches. First century church planted churches. They were in the house, but they were churches nevertheless. We need to, we need to train illiterate clergy but we need to have men of passion and compassion for others. Pastors, not theologians. Pastors, people who care about people. You know, the Apostle Paul says, although you have so many pastors, you have not many fathers. We need fathers. We need men who know how to be fathers. Not to their children, but to everyone else's children and everyone else included in their church. You cannot just buy a church building And then hope that people come. You have to have leadership. Also, you have to develop these concrete alternatives to the various problems in our culture and to the institutions. You have to put these. These solutions to work within these institutions which have been usurped by humanists or perverted by the humanists. We need to build working institutional models in the area of education, economics. And I'm, I'm just amazed how with all that's going on in the education system, why in the world don't we have a mass exodus from the schools? What, what, what Are they, Are the Christian, so-called absolutely brain dead? Do they think they can fix a brothel? by giving them antibiotics? No. They must exit the government school, set up their own Christian schools, be at home, learn what God has called the human race, which he has created in his image and in his likeness, what he has created, how they are to act, how to to respond, and what they should understand. So we need to build working institutional models in the area of education, economics, welfare, medicine, law, justice, and, and, and politics, government, history, science, the arts, the visual arts, movies, theaters, the media, psychology, and every other known institution that men has on the earth. We need to change the world. Christians are called to create something which will ensure a Christ-centered world for the generations to come. So, in celebration of our independence as a nation, we dare not celebrate independence. We dare not celebrate liberty unless we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for liberty. May God be pleased to challenge us in these times, in these dreadful times by giving us the wisdom, the stamina, and the necessary financial tools to do valiantly for his truth in establishing the crown rights of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace.